Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Hey guys, why don't we uh, welcome Tommy up for one final session. Woo! <laughs> Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, last session, guys. You've made it. I appreciate your diligence in listening. We're going to do one more session. Give me 40, 40 minutes of your time, and then it's holiday, so forget about that. Just give me 40 minutes. I would say this is probably the most important message of them all, because obviously without... <laughs> this is the call to arms, so to speak. We've got a lot of information. I hope you've digested a lot of that, but we've got to know what to do with it. Let's pray and then let's do this. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this time now. I thank you for the blessing that these few days have been. And Lord, really, Father, I just give it all to you. And we just say, have your way in us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm hoping that through all these talks, you've got a pretty good overview of the complexities of the subject of human identity. We, we've looked at, looked at it from a Christian perspective, from a, uh, an evolutionary perspective, and from a number of different vantage points to give you a good understanding of how to engage the culture. But what I want to talk about now is the final point. You know, what do we do with this information? What are we called to do? What is our purpose in life? You know, so many people ask this question. What is the meaning of life? What are we supposed to do? Yet we've seen that so many people seek answers in the wrong places. Uh, there was a story in the British press just a, f a few weeks back. It's about the UK's youngest lottery winner. I think she was 17. She won was a couple of million pounds. And she, it was in the paper because she was preparing to sue Camelot, the lottery bosses, for ruining her life. I know, it's funny, right? And this is what she said in an interview. She said, people look at me and think, I wish I had her lifestyle, I wish I had her money, but they don't realise the extent of my stress. I have material things, but apart from that, my life is empty. What is the purpose in life? You know, that's a, in a you know, newspaper report. It's almost, you can sense, the sort of existential frustration in her. I'm sure she thought that this money would allow her to do everything that she wanted to do, be who she wanted to be, but in the end, it brought ruin to her life. You see, such sort of hopelessness is typical of a generation of people who have been denied access to the Word of God, like we've talked about these last few days. They have no transcendent meaning to their lives. And as, as I showed you, it's not just theoretical. This has very serial, serious practical consequences in the world. Now, in the UK, like I said, we have a mental health epidemic. But the two main reasons for this are listed as loneliness and anxiety. Loneliness and anxiety. They're the top factors that cause these sort of things, like depression. The UK government has recently appointed a loneliness minister to the cabinet. A loneliness minister. It's an unusual title. Um, I always wonder how much they get paid. But the, the role of this minister is to take on the generational challenge to tackle an issue affecting about 9 million UK people, both young and old. And on their website, I've been on it, I've read through the guidelines, the advice they give for people to help this loneliness minister on this lovely government salary, what they have provided is a list of things that you can do to help. They list visiting the elderly, the young, the vulnerable, and the sick. You know, and as I was reading this, I thought to myself, is that not the mission of the church? Is that not exactly the prescriptions that we have in the Word of God at the most basic and fundamental level? Are these things, you know, this all flows out of what we've been talking about. We are loved by a God who is love. 
He demands that we image him. Should we not be loving people with his love like this? And I ask myself, why is the UK government having to step in and try and do this? And it speaks that it's a failure of the church. Um, it speaks a lot to the state of the church in the UK in many ways. However, I can also tell you that the government won't solve this. Um, but the fact that they're trying is quite uh, telling. Left unaddressed, these results are tragic. A recent article in Psychology Today reported on a study about suicide. The study was trying to figure out how you predict suicide. And it's a very interesting study. What they did is they collected up 50 or so suicide notes, um, both from people who had committed suicide and also attempted to commit suicide. And they were looking for common themes. Um, I'm just going to yeah, summarise the, the very end result, the end, the end line, basically, the conclusion of this study done by a number of you know, leading psychologists. It said this, listen, in general, people do not attempt suicide solely because of pain. It is because they don't believe there is a reason to live and the world would be better off without them. No purpose, no value. These are the things we've been talking about today. And I hope we've seen that what we have to offer, the message of Christ, redeemed, forgiven, loved, adopted, chosen, sealed, we have a message that far supersedes anything the UK government or any government will be able to offer for these people. Material things do not lead to fulfilment in life. There is an inner cry for purpose that transcends physical things. And you see, for the Christian, this desire finds its satisfaction in God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and we all have a part to play in this kingdom. We need to understand our calling. As Christians, this is key to living a fulfilled life. Os Guinness defines calling in the following way. He says, calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and service. The call we have on our lives as Christians is like no other calling in the world. It comes from the highest possible authority in the universe, one that actually transcends the universe. And it is a call to be involved in the work of God. It is a holy calling and nothing in this world can compare. The Christian's calling is one that looks towards and builds into an eternal kingdom. You see, that means that such a calling means your life can never be considered empty or meaningless. No matter what activity you are engaged in, God's calling infuses every moment of your life with meaning and significance. You see, the true secret to finding your calling is to realise that it comes from God. Now, you may get specific callings on your life that I can't give you an answer for. The Lord will share them with you when the time comes. But I can guarantee you he will not share them with you unless you are following the broad calling that we find in Scripture, which we'll talk about a bit today. Ultimately, it is God that knows us and has a calling for us. And only, only by knowing him will we discover our true calling. And this is really the true meaning of life for the Christian. It's a great privilege for every Christian to be enlisted in the service of God. Every single one of us has been redeemed by Christ. We are given the title of an ambassador. Now, an ambassador, you know, we have ambassadors, <laughs> national ones today. It's a special diplomat sent by another state to represent that state in a foreign country. You understand, it's a very good word to talk about Christians. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom down here, sojourning on this earth, to represent that kingdom. Therefore, every action that we do in this foreign land is a reflection upon the home nation, the kingdom of God. 
This is why we find so many exhortations to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and that is the call of an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, you can turn there, we'll read a few verses as we look at this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Be reconciled to God. God has given us that ministry of reconciliation and it is the primary call of an ambassador to represent that on this earth. You see, God has a service and a, a service for us to perform while we are here. He does not redeem us for no purpose. He is very specific in everything that he does. The Bible says, Ephesians 2.10, you know, we all know Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved. Whenever people do that in verse, they always stop at verse 9. You might have noticed that. Verse 10 is just as important. The Bible says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. If you are redeemed, God has things for you to do in whatever sphere you may be operating in. And that is the truth. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we really willing to walk in such a manner? to lay aside ourselves and hear what it is God is saying to us. Are we ready? Have we heard the call? General William Booth, you know him, he was the founder of the Salvation Army. In its early days, the Salvation Army was heavily evangelistic as a prime motivation for their social care. Their motto was blood and fire. Someone once came to William, Bull, William Booth and they said that he, they're not called to preach the gospel in the same way that he was. These are his remarks to back to that person. He said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonised heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. I'd imagine that man went away with his tail between his legs. <laughs> you see, the question comes, how should we then live as ambassadors for Christ? Now, I want to you do this talk. I'm going to use an example. One of my favourite biblical examples is the man Daniel. I love the book of Daniel, but I love the character of Daniel above all else. He was faithful in the midst of Babylon. I'm sure we all know the story. We're going to pull some insights from Daniel because as an ambassador, he represented the kingdom very, very well. But before we do that, I want to share to you just another historical example from the Battle of Thermopylae. So we're going to 480 BC. The east was on the move against the west. A colossal army, the greatest the world has ever seen, had poured across Hell's Point from Asia into Europe. This army was led by the Persian king Xerxes of biblical fame. Armoured Persians, camel-riding Arabs, chariot-riding Libyans, Scythians, fearsome Scythian warriors and many more. It's said that the ground trembled for miles when this army marched and they devoured the land like locusts wherever they passed. 
Xerxes was on a mission to defeat, to avenge the death of his father Darius and subdue the Greeks at the same time. And so it was that a hastily prepared ragtag force of 7,000 Greeks stood against perhaps a quarter of a million Persians and their army. However, at the core of these Greeks were 300 Spartans. You may have seen the movie 300. <laughs> Warriors trained to stand or die. It's said that the Spartan mothers would say to their children, you come back on your shield or with your shield. That means you come back in victory or you come back dead. We don't want you coming back in defeat. That was the Spartan way of life. They were led by the 35-year-old King Leonidas and they took their stand on a narrow pass with the sea on one side and the 5,000-foot cliffs of Mount Calidromos on the other. And for two days, the unstoppable army was stopped by the Greeks. And Xerxes sent in his best warriors, the immortals. They were known for their, for their kind of dark arts, actually. That's historically true. They were no match for the Spartans, though. Then on the second night, the Greeks were betrayed. The Persian army were led through the cliffs. And by daybreak, the Spartans were surrounded. The game was up. Death was inevitable. Leonidas dismissed the rest of the army and he led his own 300 to a little mound for the last stand. And they fought to the last man and they died. When their swords were gone, they fought with their hands and teeth. And before they died, they sent home a stirring message. And they said this, Stranger, tell the Spartans that we have behaved as they would wish us to and are buried here to this day. Tell the Spartans we have behaved as they would wish us to and are buried here to this day. The last words of a little band of Greeks who had no idea what their actions would do. You see, their example triggered a surge of Grecian pride and inspired their countrymen to decisive victories. Never again would the Persians seriously menace Greece. And in 30 short years, Athens would rise to become one of the most influential cities the world has ever known. And here is the challenge from this story for us today. Will it be said of followers of Jesus Christ in the UK and in the USA and all around the world, stranger, tell our Lord that we have behaved as he would have us behave and we are buried here to this day. Are we living lives worthy of our calling. You see, for now, we're into the threshold of the third millennium. The church confronts some of the greatest challenges it has probably ever faced. And as ambassadors, we are, are we ready to meet these challenges? You see, we're not standing for an earthly kingdom like Greece or an earthly king like Leonidas. We are called to represent a heavenly kingdom and a heavenly king, the king. That is our mission. See, now is the time to stand, to behave as our Lord would have us, to live a life worthy of that calling. And here's the thing I want you to recognise. Often our behaviour is directed by our beliefs. Ideas have consequences. What we believe will affect what we do. So now is the time to make sure we believe what is right. And I would encourage you all to just use every second that you have at an opportunity of a, you know, a Bible college like this to learn the word of God. Put that word into your life because it will serve you well as you go out into the fight. When you're in Babylon, a comfortable armchair-style Christianity just simply will not do. You see, now is the time to understand our calling as the deepest, most stirring, all-consuming passion in our lives. Unlike the Greeks, God does not need strength. He's got enough of that himself. He's not looking for 300 Spartans, but what God does need is faithfulness. And then he will provide the strength for those who are faithful. Think of young Mary Jones again everything that he did through her faith. You remember David's mighty men? 
you know, that small band of people who killed all those soldiers. It's the same principle. Let's look at the life of Daniel. I just want to set the context for you before what happens. As we look at this, I want us to remember that passage in Romans. Whatever was written in earlier time was written for our instructions so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The lessons that we read about in the Old Testament for Israel are not there just out of historical curiosity. They are there to teach us very specific lessons for our lives today. And this issue of Babylon is one of the huge ones. King Jehoiakim had just taken the throne. You read about this in 2 Kings. It says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. At this time, Egypt was the regional superpower and they were demanding taxes from Israel. However, Babylon was on the rise and Babylon eventually destroyed the power of Egypt. We can learn, you can turn with me to Jeremiah 23 briefly and we'll have a look at this. We can learn a lot about the time of Jehoiakim through the ministry of Jeremiah the prophet. He was the prophet sent to warn them, to warn Judah that they are on the brink of judgment and captivity. Jeremiah 23, verse 10 to 12. We get a glimpse of the situation of the current culture in Israel at this time. Jeremiah says this, For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I will find their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall, for I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Now what really stands out to me in that passage, both prophet and priest were ungodly. The very people that God had said were supposed to be the people to bring truth to that nation were the very ones that were leading that nation astray. Because when the leadership falls, thus goes the nation. And this is a lesson for us in the church today. However hard the temptation to compromise gets with the word of God, we must stand firm. Because the word of God is our mission call. Prophet and priest were ungodly. We learn in Jeremiah 26 that at the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the Lord sent the prophet Jeremiah to him. Jeremiah entered the temple in Jerusalem and he prophesied in the name of the Lord. I'll read you a couple of verses. Thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you, and listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. If you will not listen to me to walk in my way that I have set before you. This is what he demanded Israel. And this is what he demands of the church today. You know, what is this, for this is the love of God, that we are obedient to his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And when everyone heard these words, <laughs> Jeremiah says these words. It says in verse 8, And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to the people, then the priests and the prophets, notice, the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. You shall die. I find that interesting. They don't like what the word was saying. So instead of humbling their heart and seeking the Lord, they tried to shut up the messenger. Isn't this like our culture today? They don't like what we say, so they'll pass laws that we cannot say it. And that's how the game is played. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the Lord said to Jeremiah, Go and write on a scroll the indictments I have against Judah 
and read them before the king. And these uh, indictments that Baruch, the scribe of Jeremiah, did write on a scroll were read before the king, who hears them in his chamber. And it says in Jeremiah that after every part is read, the king tears the scroll and he throws it into the fire. You see, someone who gets so angry at the words of God is someone who is living in rebellion against God in their heart. You've probably met people like this. Some people get so irrationally angry when you try to talk to them about God. It's because their heart is in rebellion. Oxford University in the UK, just last year, they banned, you know, Freshers' Week. You have Freshers' Weeks here, yeah? Everyone has a little table. The Christian Union had a table. And uh, the Christian Union for Oxford University, they were banned from having a table because it might cause potential harm to to Freshers. That was last year. Just this last month, just last month, the, uh, the Oxford Student Union uh, voted not to allow a Christian group to use their college for a conference over the holidays. So one thing that the universities do is they all rent out their facilities to just loads of people who do you know, conferences during the holidays. Um, and Christian groups have been doing this for, for years and years. The group is called the Wilberforce Academy. They're a group that aims to train young Christians in leadership skills for public life. Um, you know, very non, <laughs> non-offensive really, but they are pro-traditional marriage and they're pro-life. But it was the students of Oxford University that voted not to allow this. And in their, in their memo they said this, they po- this is the reason, because they posed a real threat to the physical and mental safety of students. And now, I've been to a lot of Christian conferences. Um, you know, lovely worship, organised sitting and tea and coffee. You know, physical well-being has never really been something that I've been concerned about. The fact that they can say this just shows how out of touch people are and how have no understanding of religion in this day and age. However, the funny thing about this was that this memo was written, you know, on top of a memo at Oxford University at the top. This is the number one ranking university in the world today. I'll just remind you of that, Oxford University. Now, this memo was written, and at the top of the memo was the Oxford University crest. If you've ever seen the Oxford University crest, it is a circle, and in the centre of the circle is an open Bible with the words Dominus Illuminato Mea written on it. That is Latin, it's the opening word of Psalm 27, and it says, The Lord is my light. (coughs) How's that for irony? You shall die, burn the scroll. This is how we go into captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple, he took the slaves to Babylon, and one of these young slaves, as we know, was a man named Daniel, who was a teenager at the time. Turn with me to the book of Daniel, please. Daniel chapter 1. We'll read the first seven verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration of the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, 
And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshech, and to Azariah, Abednego. So he took the vessels and he placed them in the temple of Marduk. He then took what's known, you know, the finest stock of Israel's youth, and they were to be educated into the royal family and the king's court, the king of Babylon. They were to be trained for his service. And then you get that verse in verse 4, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. What that basically means is re-educate them, indoctrinate them with our worldview, with the way we do things, so that they forget about where they came from. This is the whole point behind the name change. Remove their foundation and replace it with our foundation. Because the names, obviously, as I'm sure you know, they all refer, in the, the Hebrew names refer to God in some way, the Babylonian names refer to the Babylonian gods. Remove their foundation and replace it with ours. This is so, again, such a good picture of what our culture does, which is why we had a whole session at the very beginning laying the foundation, because that will not be removed from us, that foundation. They did this in three areas, intellectually, through education, socially, through, through food and jobs, and they did it religiously with the names. Intellectually, socially, and religiously. Now, these are the exact same ways that Satan does this for us today. That he tries to educate us in the, in the ways of the world through these three rings, these three areas. He wants to indoctrinate us into the world system. He wants us to feed on what the world offers. He wants us to identify ourselves in reference to the world and remove that old foundation. He wants us to educate ourselves in the ways of the world. <laughs> you see, there's you know, a lot of people present it that sort of the secularists, secularists present that there's this myth of neutrality. You know, we're not, we don't want to push, you know, the secular worldview is a, it's a neutral ground, so we'll keep religion here, and we'll just come to the mid, come into the middle, and this is all neutral, it's all good. That's, you know, that's a lie, I hope you can all see that. You know, you're either for God or you're against God. There's not really any middle ground in this area. How do we deal with this? I believe in verse 8 we get the best lesson that we can from Daniel. Verse 8, it says, But Daniel made up his mind, or some of your translations may read, purposed in his heart, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile them. And this is probably the best spiritual lesson that we have in the book of Daniel. He made up his mind not to compromise. And you notice his mind was made up probably before he even came to Babylon. He had his mind set on the word of God. This means that we need to make a volitional choice to live according to God's word. He chose not to defile himself. You see, the king's food was undoubtedly offered to idols in Babylon. It would have not been kosher, so to speak, for the Jewish people. Now, this is serious. We need to think about this. What was it that controlled Daniel at this time? that directed him to refuse the king's food, even though it was probably quite a risky uh, demand to make. It was his knowledge of the Holy Scriptures. Because for Daniel, he had the Levitical dietary laws, which was the word of God to him at that time. And he took that very seriously. And it was because of his obedience to the word of God that he was not willing to compromise. And he made up his mind that he would not come away from the word of God, regardless of what the consequences were. He purposed in his heart, he made up his mind, that he would not defile himself. He was a man of the word. A little later in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, it shows us Daniel trying to figure out when the captivity will end, and he's studying the prophet Jeremiah. Daniel was a man of the word. Ambassadors need to be people of the book. 
Think of that quote by John Wesley that I read. Oh, give me that book. Make me a man of one book. We are literally the people of the book. We need to reclaim the authority of the word of God in our lives. And when I say that, I mean we really need to feed on it, understand it's important for us and what it is. We talked about this in the first session. If any of you have ever seen an early uh, Gideon's Bible, um, quite often they have a, a little sort of, I'll read it to you, a little paragraph in the first few pages introducing the Bible. And they say this. It says, The Bible is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveller's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here is paradise restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. We don't write like we used to. You see, this is why, as ambassadors, we are to take the word of God, the word of life, quite literally, with us, wherever we go. And like Daniel, we make up our minds that we will not compromise. And then we will see the Spirit of God move. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and as you, you have him up in your, in your cafe, he said this, we can be perfectly certain that the church lost her authority and power the moment she ceased to firmly believe in the authority of the word of God. There is no middle ground. A church that tries to capitulate to the culture to seem contemporary and relevant is a church that has lost its power. And the harder we will try and the more we'll fail. The answer is very simple. As ambassadors, we make up our minds. We will not compromise the word of God. Daniel's morals convictions were based upon the word of God. And we live in a culture that often seems to resemble Babylon more than it does anything else. We need that same conviction. We mustn't be tempted to compromise and we mustn't live lives that are full of hypocrisy. I know we're sinners and we fail and God's grace is sufficient for us in everything. And we cling to the cross in that regard. But we don't want to live hypocritical lives. I'll tell you another story. There was a young Jewish boy who grew up in Germany many years ago. And the lad had a profound sense of admiration for his father. Who saw to it that the life of the family revolved around the religious practices of their faith. The father led them to the synagogue faithfully. In his teen years, however, the boy's family was forced to move to another town in Germany. And this town had no synagogue, only a Lutheran church. The life of the community revolved around the Lutheran church. All the best people belonged to it. Suddenly the father announced to the family that they were going to abandon their Jewish traditions and join the Lutheran church. And when the stunned family asked why, the father explained that it would be good for business. The youngster was bewildered and confused. His deep disappointment soon gave way to anger and a kind of intense bitterness that plagued him throughout his life. Later he left Germany and went to England to study. Each day he was at the British Museum formulating his ideas and composing a book. And in that book he introduced a whole new worldview and conceived a movement that was designed to change the world. He described religion as the opiate of the masses. He committed the people who followed him to life without God. His ideas became the norm for the governments of almost half the world's people. His name, Karl Marx, the founder of the communist movement. 
and communism today has swallowed up more people with its evils than many other movements in history. I find it shocking that it's once again becoming quite a popular worldview in countries that should know better. We need to make a volitional choice to live according to God's word and we need to follow that through with every ounce of our being. Now this conviction may lead us to the fiery furnace, it may lead us to the lion's den, but this is where we fall back on the promises that we had of God that he will never leave us nor forsake us and that we will live with him forever in eternity. Has anyone heard of Lady Jane Grey? Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England for nine days. Just nine days, she was a young teenager at the time. See, after King Henry VIII died, I'm sure you all know the story of Henry VIII, uh, he was an a interesting character. His young son, Edward, came to the throne. Edward was a kind of weak king, he was described as, but he was favourable to the ideas of the Reformation, which was the, all the, you know, it was Catholic versus Protestant at this time in England, who would control England. Henry VIII obviously separated from the Pope, started the Anglican Church, so that he could marry some yeah, youth. This is a sordid story of how the church got started, but during this time, when his son Edward came to the throne, there were two men in the Anglican Church, Hugh, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, men of God, faithful men of God, who were directing King uh, Edward. And what they did is they made Edward amend his will so that when he died, Lady Jane Grey, who was his first cousin once removed, would get the throne rather than his sister, Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary. So when Edward died, he died young because he was a poorly boy. They did this to make sure that England did not return under the auspices of the Catholic Church. However, when Lady Jane came to, Lady Jane came to the throne, Queen Mary who was a closer, obviously a closer relative, um, she obviously assumed she should be the rightful heir to the throne, and in kind of, she probably was the rightful heir to the throne. And because of this, she was able to garner popular and military support, and she formed a coup, and she had Lady Jane dethroned and arrested in 1553. She was imprisoned in the Tower of London. However, Queen Mary was persuaded by her Catholic advisers not to execute her straight away, but to try and convert her back to Catholicism, because that would really appear like a good win. So they got one of their best spiritual advisors, a man named John Feckenham. He was a Benedictine monk, and they, they held some public debates. They're known as the Feckenham Debates. You can read them. And I'll, I'll read to you just a very small section. So John Feckenham, it, during the course of, of the debate, and remember, Lady Jane, you know, she's a teenage girl at this time, you know, standing against the, the authorities here. Feckenham says to her, how many sacraments are there? And Lady Jane says, two the one sacrament of baptism and the other of the Lord's Supper. Feckenham says, no, there are seven. And then Lady Jane says, and this is what I want to draw your attention to, she says, by what scripture find you that? What she's asking is, what is your biblical authority for that belief and that teaching? He didn't answer her. You see, the scriptures were her guide, as they should be for us today. You remember Acts 17:11? those in Berea, were more you know, noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with a great eagerness, but they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Lady Jane was executed, and in her final speech, executions were done publicly in this day. It was in the public square. The towns, everyone would come and watch. Obviously, this is a big execution. This is the Queen of England. In her final speech, she said this, you were allowed to give a final speech when you, in these days. It was just common. I pray you all, good Christian people, 
to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman, and that I do look and that I do look to be saved by no other means, by only by the mercy of God in the blood of his son Jesus Christ. She then knelt down and she had the entire audience who were there with her recite the entirety of Psalm 51 by memory, which begins, Have mercy upon me, O God. And after that she got up, she took off her gloves, she gave them to her ladies-in-waiting, she took out her prayer book, and she gave that to the Tower Guard. You can go and see her prayer book in the Tower of London, we still have that. She then told the executioner that she forgives him for what he must do. She was blindfolded, and she was made to kneel down. And then there's one part of the story, if you've ever seen a movie, there's lots of movies made about this. She was put on her knees, blindfolded, too far away from the chopping block. And she lost her composure at this moment. And she screamed, you know, where is it? I can't find it. And she had to be helped to the block. And the man who jumped up to help her was John Feckenham, the man she debated. And they say that this wasn't malicious. They say that she'd actually won his respect during those debates. And it was actually out of reverence for her, because it was an undignified moment, that he took her to the block. Finally, she put her head on the chopping block, and with her final words, she said, Lord, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then, down came the axe, and she was in the presence of the Lord. She was captive to the word of God. And here is the lesson. If you're captive to the word of God, you will never be captive to the gods of Babylon. By what scripture find you that? Daniel was a man of the word. He was also a man of prayer. Flip over to Daniel chapter 6. Verses 4 and 5. And then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. What's that basically saying? He was a perfect ambassador. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground or accusation unless we accuse it, um, any ground of against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. You can see the tactics there. We won't read the whole story, but you know the story, they get the king to sign this law um, that you can, only pray, you can only pray to him. They sort of tricked the Persian king, who actually was quite fond of Daniel, but they managed to get him to sign this law that they couldn't pray. But of course, Daniel um, would ignore such a law. It says in verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had his windows open towards Jerusalem. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks to God, as he had been doing previously. What does that show us? This was a habit for Daniel. It was an ingrained habit of Daniel to spend that time in communion with God every day. And he didn't care whether the king had just signed a law or not. He was going to have his time with his God. Prayer is powerful. You notice his windows were open towards Jerusalem. To pray towards Jer Jerusalem was commanded in Second Chronicles. Again, he's praying in obedience to the word of God, which is what true, true prayer should be right. A lot of our prayers, I think we spend a lot of time praying for things that maybe are not in the will of God. And we all do this as we grow and as the Lord sanctifies us. But we need to look at the men of scripture, the ambassadors, the example of these people that we have. What did they pray for? And we use them as an example. Prayer is powerful. And because I've got you, I'm going to share one more historical example from English history. I know you all love that. Christmas, 1939. 
Great Britain was at war with Nazi Germany. King George VI addressed the nation. He said this, A new year is at hand. We cannot tell what it will bring. If it brings peace, how thankful we shall all be. If it brings us continued struggle, we shall remain undaunted. He then read a poem. He said, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God, and that shall be a better light and a safer than an all-known way for you. May the Almighty Hand guide and uphold us. Just a few months after this, May 1940, we have what in British history is referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk. Probably, again, there's a recent movie that's come out, Dunkirk. Um, They missed a lot of (laughs) good history in that. The Allied forces were outmaneuvered and unprepared for a German onslaught in France. Total annihilation was imminent. King George VI again addressed the nation, and this time he called for a national day of prayer to be on the following Sunday. And people came in their droves. There are quite a lot of pictures available. Queues miles long outside of churches in Westminster Abbey and St Paul's Cathedral. Hundreds of people came to pray at the King's command. Now, on this, on, just before this, on the Saturday, the decision had been made to evacuate as many people as possible. And a message went out to everyone with a vessel to cross the channel and pick up whoever you can. 800 vessels answered that call. Now, it's called the miracle of Dunkirk because three very curious events happened that allowed this to be successful that no one, you know, no military historian can really explain. The first one is that Hitler ordered his army to stop for three days with no explanation. If he hadn't done that, he would have been able to destroy. You know, they had them cornered, there was no way for them to go, they could have destroyed them. For some reason, no one knows, he ordered his army to stop for three days. Secondly, bad weather on the Tuesday grounded the Luftwaffe, the, the Air Force, the German Air Force, which allowed all the Allies to get to the beach. And then on the Wednesday, unusual for that time of year, the sea was extraordinarily calm, allowing 800 vessels to come, land, pick up, troops and go. In total, 338,000 troops were snatched from the beaches that day. Many of those troops who would then go on and fight later to win those wars. Reminds me of that verse, if my people are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and restore their land. I'm not saying that's contextually accurate, but you know what I mean? It just reminds me of that verse. As ambassadors, we need to pray. Around the time of Bloody Mary, the Scottish Reformation was taking place up, up in Scotland, and there was a man named John Knox. I'm sure many of you have heard of John Knox, another hero of the Reformation. He was known for his life of prayer. It's been said that the, John Knox's greatness lay in his humble dependence on a sovereign God to save his people, revive a nation, and reform the church. So well known was the ministry of prayer that Bloody Mary is reported to have said that she fears the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. She fears the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. You see, Knox believed that one man with God is always in the majority. And his most famous prayer was simply the passionate words, Give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland or I die. Give me Hastings or I die. Give me California or I die. Makes me think of those words. Stranger, tell Christ that we have behaved as he would have us behaved and we are buried here to this day. You know, do we pray for our nations like that? Do we take it seriously that we are representing a heavenly kingdom as ambassadors for Christ with that sort of urgency? Give me Scotland or I die. 
and he did get Scotland was given to him at that time as ambassadors we are not only looking to represent that kingdom it actually goes further than that we are actually looking to expand that kingdom but not with physical territory with people because we have that message of reconciliation which means that hearts and lives that respond to that message are drawn and accepted into that kingdom and the kingdom thus expands that is the true high calling that we have that is our purpose and that is our meaning in life and our whole heart should pursue that end as we are here for every day that the Lord gives us breath one last illustration and then we'll close David Livingstone the great missionary explorer who went to Africa he spent most of his life living and going to the unreached parts of Africa um, he's the one who named Victoria Falls who was the first Westerner to ever lay eyes on, on Victoria Falls and he named it after Queen Victoria he loved the land of Africa and it said that in his last days his skin was hard like leather from living under the African Sun he was blind in one eye from an accident traveling through the jungle one arm was mauled and lame he was attacked by a lion rescuing a villager and he was so sick from dysentery and various African diseases that he couldn't walk but yet he still wanted to press on to the next village his companions would carry him in a hammock as they walked through the jungle to the next village he did this for many years eventually he became so weak they made him a little hut a little shelter and they went to put him on his bed and as they lay him on the bed he said to them no no put me on my knees by the bed as he'd done every night and they put him on his knees and he knelt by the bed and he began to pray to the God of heaven they, le they left him gave him his privacy and when they went into the morning to find him he was still kneeling by his bed except that he was dead he died as he lived in communion with his God his body was sent back to England but his, it's in Westminster Abbey today but his heart was actually removed and buried under a tree in Africa you see they did that because they knew Africa had his heart and Africa had his heart because that is where God has called him God had his heart you see his heart was where he was called where your treasure is there your heart will be and I'll leave you with this thought where is your heart let's pray Heavenly Father I thank you Lord so much for this time thank you Lord for all these students here I pray that you would speak powerfully into their lives Lord and use them for whatever it is you have called them to do Father we thank you Lord for this time I pray that you'll bless them with their Thanksgiving breaks in Jesus name um, just briefly I, I want to say thank you all it's been a great pleasure to be here and share with you So, um, a few of you have asked um, how you can follow things that I write or about the book uh, the, the best way is to be honest is to follow my ministry account on Instagram it's theology.apologetics I post everything on there really that, that I do if you're not a social media fan I understand um, it's a good thing maybe in some ways it's not, I'm not getting into that now um, come and just come and see me afterwards I can give you a ministry card or there's other ways so you know come and say bye to me but enjoy your Thanksgiving break thank you thank you for listening for more resources please go to thomasfretwell.com